Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that has been up nights trying to write something clever for this bit right here. Unfortunately, it came up a bit short. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today we're going to look at Conan the Barbarian number 12 from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of December 1971, but it hit the stands in September. It sold for just 20 cents, and it contains two stories. The Dweller in the Dark, and The Blood of the Dragon. The Dweller in the Dark is the main story, however, so that's the one we're going to start with. It was written by Roy Thomas with art by Barry Windsor Smith and letters by Sam Rosen. Into the boat! Conan arrives at the Corinthian city of Zaman. As he attempts to drink from a protected spring, he is surprised by Zaman soldiers. The Sumerian kills the captain of the guards and is knocked out by another soldier in fear that the queen may question them as to who killed her favorite. Oh, their heads! The soldiers manage to get the best of the weary barbarian and drag him before their queen. Not my queen. The power-mad Fatima. Impressed by the barbarian, she takes him as her consort for several weeks until Conan makes the mistake of being nice to the slave girl, Yela. Oh! Hi, Conan, how are you? Good. The insanely jealous, or maybe just insane, Fatima sentences the two to death in the sewers at the pleasure of the Dweller in the Darkness. Open the head! Conan is chained next to Yela upon an ancient wall as both hear something coming from down inside the darkened caverns. Conan manages to break free of the chains that hold him as a huge pink tentacle reaches around a corner. The Sumerian and the girl travel down the sewer tunnel just as the dweller, a giant octopus, slithers into view in a vast chamber beyond. The wretched creature, once human but now transformed into the thing, lashes out at Conan and Yela. What thing? The, the thing? Conan attempts to rescue the girl who is snatched up in one of the creature's tentacles. Even though the monster is spongy and hard to cut, Conan manages to slice one of the creature's eyes, blinding it. The monster, now in pain, begins lashing out as the Sumerian and the girl attempt to find an escape. Conan, carrying Yela, scrambles up a tunnel in the ceiling. Breaking through a manhole, they find themselves in the throne room in the middle of Fatima and a group of guards. Fed up with the situation, Conan grabs the queen and threatens to throw her down the hole to the monster. Fatima promises Conan anything he wants if he lets her go. Not believing for a second, Conan tosses her to the dweller and listens, satisfied with her screams. Conan turns to face the guards, but is surprised when they cheer. They were fed up with Fatima themselves. Conan takes the opportunity to attempt to make himself king. But when he discovers that Zaman only allows queens... 
names Yela as the next ruler and, having enough of queens, leaves town. Cause maybe all my life I will be driving home to you. I need you. I'm yours. All right, so this was not actually meant to be the next Conan issue, but it took them longer than they thought it would to get the previous issue ready, which was issue number 11. You know, rogues in the house. No. I'm a rogue. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked about it, but I also know that my own memory lasts about as long as a mosquito's lifespan at a bug zapper convention. So I figured I'd just remind y'all. Anyway, at some point between issues 11 and 12, Martin Goodman, who was Stan Lee's boss at Marvel, well, he decided to cut back on the page count of their books from 48 pages to 32, which according to Roy, actually worked out pretty well for the Conan crew because they knew they wouldn't have enough time to get issue 12 done by the time of the deadline had the page count remained at 48 pages. We didn't have time. Plus, they already had a story just sitting around itching to be published because Barry had drawn up this 16-page story based on a synopsis from Roy for the second issue of the black and white magazine-sized comic, Savage Tales. But wait, some of you might be saying, they didn't do a second issue of Savage Tales. Well, not until 1973 anyways. And yeah, that's right. Which is why they had this story just sitting around there waiting to be published. See, let me explain. Savage Tales issue number one landed in January of 1971, eight months before Conan the Barbarian number 12. And in that first issue, we were given an adaptation of the Frost Giant's daughter that was both penciled and inked by Mr. Windsor Smith. Then, preparing for the second issue, which should have come out in February, maybe even March of 71, Barry drew this 16-page story, The Dweller in the Dark. And that, as I said, just ended up sitting there gathering dust because they didn't put out a second issue of Savage Tales until June of 1973. And I'm not really quite sure why, but I'm sure we'll get into that in a later episode. But not only did they have this 16-page story ready to go for issue number 12, Barry was then able to get to work on issue number 13 earlier than he normally would have. Of course, they still needed to fill the rest of the issue, and that's where the blood of the dragon comes in, which Mr. Windsor Smith was not involved in, but we'll get to that here in a bit. By the way, if you're wondering why I haven't talked about Savage Tales number one yet, considering that it was released around the same time as Conan the Barbarian number four, well, the answer there is pretty simple. Uh, I forgot all about it <laughs> at the time. I just was looking through stuff sometime around issue number five when I was talking about it and went, oh, crap, I forgot about Savage Tales. But considering that the story that appears in Savage Tales number one is, like I said, the Frost Giant's Daughter, which I've already talked about in the Frost Giant's Daughter bonus episode. And it's also reprinted and colored for Conan the Barbarian number 16. I figured it's okay that we skipped Savage Tales number one because I'll be talking about the Frost Giant's Daughter again when we get to Conan the Barbarian issue number 16. Anyway, if you looked at the Hyborian Age map at any point, while reading through The Dweller in the Dark and you thought to yourself, or even said out loud, Conan's travels make no sense at all. I mean, he started in Samaria, right? 
He headed out into the great wide world following the Battle of Venarium, which, while it has been mentioned within these issues, we haven't seen it depicted yet in the Marvel Comics run. Set in the universe of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian. So from Samaria, he heads north into Vanaheim and signs on as a mercenary with the Vannermen to do battle against the men of Asgard and eventually winds up the prisoner of a shaman in a cave in Asgard, which is east of Vanaheim. That all happened in issue number one. In issue number two, he's still in Asgard where he fights the Beastmen. By issue three, he's moved further east and to the south as he finds himself on the border between Hyperborea and Brithunia, and he gets all mixed up in a war between the two nations. He heads further south into Zamora and breaks into the Tower of the Elephant in issue number four. Issues five and six also take place in Zamora, where Conan meets a tiger lady, and then he fights a giant bat. The bat? Oh, man, give me a break, will you? In issue seven, now he starts traveling west. He's working in a bit of a circle, and he makes his way into Corinthia, winding up somewhere near the lost city of Lanjiao, which is close to the western border of Corinthia, and thereabouts he remains throughout issues eight, nine, ten. And 11. At the end of issue 11, however, after losing a close friend, after having spent some time in jail, after being betrayed by his lady friend, after fighting and killing an ape man, and then killing the red priest Nabonidus, Conan announces that he's off to Argos, which is on the West Coast. He wants to see the ocean. And yet, here we are in the very next issue, issue number 12. And Conan is in the Corinthian city of Zaman, which is all the way over by the eastern border of Corinthia. I mean, what's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? How does one head west but end up way east of where one started out? Well, that's going to happen when the Conan crew has to slide an older unpublished story in there for issue 12 rather than do the one they originally wanted to do, pushing that one to issue number 13. So yeah, that was just a very long way for me to explain why Conan isn't on his way to Argos in this issue. Stop wasting all of our time. Anyway, I really enjoyed the art in this one. It was both penciled and inked by Barry Windsor Smith, meaning that this is all him. You know, throughout all of these episodes, I've been talking a lot about Smith's art style in these issues compared to what we're going to see in issue 205 of the X-Men in 1986, which is my most favorite single comic book issue ever. And one of the things I have continued to point out is that Barry inked himself in that X-Men issue while he's had others inking him in these Conan issues. Well, not with this one. Again, this is all Barry. And yeah, it still looks good. He does have a little ways to go, however, before he reaches that X-Men 205 level. But speaking of the art, let's go ahead and go through the story real quick. The cover is actually not a Barry Windsor Smith cover. It was drawn by Gil Kane. And it has Conan fighting a bunch of guys that, I don't know, they look like they would fit perfectly alongside He-Man and his fellow Masters of the Universe. Impressive, you boob. It was spectacular. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just think that these Hyborian Age warriors look more like sci-fi, you know, the type of 
fantasy warriors you might see in a sci-fi movie. I don't know. Anyway, at the very bottom of the cover, it says the most savage hero of all. We start the story and Conan is wearing this freaking frilly, stringy shirt. Roy mentions in Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one, that he was a bit taken aback by, quote, the stringy little shirt that Barry put Conan in, end quote, but that it eventually grew on him. And for me, it has yet to grow on me. I'm not a big fan of this shirt. I don't know what it is. It's very 70s. It's it's kind of a 60s, 70s kind of look here that's going on. And you can definitely tell as you go through this book and some of the previous issues that Barry is very influenced of the art that you would find at the time, like from Beatles albums and, and junk like that. But Conan wearing this stringy shirt is drinking out of a spring and a bunch of guys come leaping over a wall, calling him a desert rat and telling him that nobody is allowed to drink from the springs of Zaman until they have paid tribute to their queen. Hi, Queenie. You look sexy. And so Conan, of course, he's like, hey, I drink where I want to drink. Hear me? And so they fight. Conan kills one of them, but they, the rest of them end up subduing him. And one of the guards suggests just splitting him open like a melon and leaving him for the vultures. But one of the other guards points out, no, this guy killed the queen's favorite dude, the, her, her lover in the nighttime. And we need to bring this guy back to her. Otherwise, she's just going to think that we're the ones that killed him because he owed us a gambling debt or something. And so they pick him up and they bring him into the palace. And Fatima is half naked. And we also meet her slave girl, Yela, who is also half naked. And this is because, I mean, it's a little bit more risque here because this was meant to go into the black and white magazine sized issue, which didn't have to adhere to the comics code. And so they could get a little bit more racy with it. I don't know. He doesn't say in the literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Roy doesn't say whether or not they did anything to cover up anything, to add any clothing. I know that when we start talking about Frost Giant's daughter, when we get to issue number 16, she was drawn, the Frost Giant's daughter, in at least one panel, topless. And so they had to add like a shawl or something to her when they reprinted it for the Conan the Barbarian issue. Anyway, the queen is very enamored with young Conan and his muscly body and his stringy shirt. And so she decides to spare his life as long as he will take the place of the guy she killed, whom she refers to as the captain, the captain of the guard. And her slave girl, Yela, offers to show Conan to his new quarters. And right away, Fatima is like, uh-uh, girl, you take your hands off my man. I will take him to his room. And she does just that. And uh, they get into a little something-something. Take me, you barbarian. Conan ends up spending weeks here at the palace. And at one point, he decides to see how far he can go within the palace grounds, if he can even leave the palace. And he quickly finds out that he cannot. He is not allowed to leave the palace by order of the queen. And so he's pretty pissed off about that because he doesn't, he doesn't want to be considered a kept man. He is freaking Conan, the freaking freaking barbarian. And nobody tells him where he can or cannot go. Least ways a queen. 
And so he bursts into the queen's private bath chamber and finds not the queen taking a bath, but Yela naked in the bath. And she quickly covers herself up. He wants to yell at the queen. Yela understands why he's so angry, because as she tells him that he thinks himself as the captain of the queen's guard, but he is that in name only. So she gets out of the bath and it's as he's handing her a robe that she tells him that if he wants any type of freedom, he needs to flee. He needs to leave the palace. He needs to get out now because eventually he's either going to start getting old and lose his boyish good looks or the queen's just going to become bored with him. And then she'll do what she's done with every one of her consorts up to that point. Kill him. It's at that point that Fatima and her guards burst in, see Conan with his hands on Yela, and yeah, that's not a good situation to be caught in. Even though Conan and Yela aren't technically doing anything wrong, Fatima's like, "Uh uh-uh, get your hands off my man. And she has the guards grab them, and they go down below the palace into the dungeons, and they are chained to a wall in, I don't know, there's like a river in the dungeons. All the tunnels are full of water. There's a walkway that goes along the middle, so you can walk through without being in the water. But they're thrown in the water and chained to the walls, and they are left to be slain by what they refer to as the Dweller in the Dark. Conan must die. Well, Conan is not having any of that, and so he starts pulling against his chains. He says that the chains are new, but the one link that links the chains to the wall is old. And so they spend one, two, three, four, five, five panels of him, five, six panels of him straining against these chains until finally he pulls himself free. His wrists are covered in blood because for some reason, as he's pulling against these chains, he doesn't grab a hold of the chains in any way to maybe take some of that pressure off of those metal cuffs that are wrapped around his wrists. He just uses his wrists to pull at the chains, which makes absolutely no sense at all. I feel like Barry Windsor Smith has never in his life been chained to a wall and uh, has had to try to pull himself free, I guess. I don't know. It just seems like common sense. You'd want to grab the chains with your hands and pull that way. But whatever he did, it's not what he did here. But he, he gets himself free. His wrists are a bloody mess. He gets Yala free and they head deeper into the dungeon, heading down a tunnel that, as Yela points out, is actually toward where they're hearing the sounds of the dweller in the dark that is coming their way. And Conan points out that really this is the only way out. They could go back through the door that they were brought into, but he knows that all of the queen's guards will be there and the door's locked. And he would rather face the danger that's coming at him than turn his back to it and let it creep up to him from behind as he's trying to break down a steel door. Well, as they make their way deeper into the dungeon, Conan finds a skeleton that has a sword. He finds that very lucky. So he takes the sword just in time as the Dweller in the Dark makes its first appearance. Now, the Dweller in the Dark was meant to be just a big old octopus. That was what Roy had originally envisioned. But when he got the art back, Barry had drawn an almost human-like face on this octopus. And then that inspired 
Roy to add in this text that basically says that at one time, the dweller used to be a man like anybody else, but he was punished by the gods for some imagined slight and his very humanity faded, shed like a snake's skin, and he became what is the dweller in the dark. And there's even some text that says the pit thing tries to speak, tries to say, once I was human, even as you, but the words die unborn in a throat not made for human speech. It is a really creepy looking monster. And it's really here that that Barry's art just really shines. Again, he's not quite at that X-Men 205 from 1986. He's not quite at that level yet, but it's this is the best art that I have seen in the book so far of of the previous 11 issues. This is the best looking one, especially the Dweller in the Dark. It looks creepy. He does a really good job with all of the details here, the freaking little suction cups all over its tentacles. It looks really nice. And frankly, I think the only thing that takes away from how great the art looks is the coloring because the coloring just wasn't up to the kind of standard that you would want to use for a Barry Windsor Smith art. And I think that's why eventually he ended up coloring his own art by X-Men 205. I'm fairly certain that not only did he pencil and ink that issue, he colored it as well. And Barry doing his own colors to his own pencils and inks just adds a, a level of specialness and quality to those pages that you're not quite seeing here. You're not quite seeing here. The, the coloring is good. I don't know who did the coloring. Maybe it was Barry. Maybe this is like one of his first tries at doing some coloring because it's not listed in the credits as far as who the colorist is within the book itself. So who knows? But there's a great moment where Conan slices right across the dweller's eye and then sticks his sword in there. And as the dweller starts to flail about in pain, there's this freaking image of the dweller with this freaking sword stuck in its eye, actual red blood flowing from its eye. And it it's because it, the, the, the eyes have irises and this, the, the dweller in the dark here on, on a, let's see, one, two, three, the fourth panel, page 12, his eyes are rolling up in the back of its head. And while that by itself looks really good, because the sword is sticking out of that freaking eye, I'm imagining the sword moving along with the eyeball as it rolls into the back of this creature's head. And that just creeps me the frick out. I mean, gross. You know what I'm saying? Well, Conan manages to get himself and Yela free of the creature. They find a shaft in the ceiling that they climb up. Conan does so by basically bracing his back against one side of the shaft and then using his feet on the other side of the shaft to slowly shuffle his way up as he's holding Yela. And he mentions at one point that the rocky edges of this shaft is just tearing his back to ribbons, but they continue to go up and they find a manhole and they open it up and find themselves within the freaking throne room, basically, of the palace. And Fatima's there. All of the guards are there. And Conan's like, ah, well, I guess I got to do what I got to do. And he starts kicking some ass. The fight doesn't last long. He's able to grab a sword. And then he grabs a hold of Fatima and throws her into the shaft where she is grabbed up and then killed 
by the dweller. Conan then turns to face the guards, thinking that he's got a lot of people that he's going to have to kill if he wants to get out of there. But he finds out that they're all pretty happy. They're, they're, they're very pleased that he killed the queen. They've all gotten kind of sick of her as well. She's been kind of tyrannical and, and mean. And they tell him that now they are free to choose a new leader. Conan tells them that a dream once told him that he will one day be a king. And so this is as good a place as any. And they tell him, no, we've always had a queen. So you can choose a queen for us. And he chooses Yela. And then he gets the hell out because he's just tired of palace life and queens and and, and all this junk. Um, Now, I will point out that apparently the readers of this book, the fans, were not happy with the death of Fatima because as far as the readers were concerned and Roy eventually came around to that kind of thinking as well. Conan would never kill a woman. That's, that's what the readers thought. I don't, I'm kind of on the fence about that. I think if Conan needed to, he would kill a woman because that's just who Conan is. He's not going to, he's not going to allow himself to die for over some code of, I will not kill a woman. I don't think that's going to happen, but the readers felt that Conan would never do that. And in fact, I believe Roy says in the Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one, that the death of Fatima was not in his original synopsis. It's something that Barry either sprung on him when he provided him the art, or it was something that Barry event talked, like eventually talked Roy into, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to end this. And Roy agreed, but he can't remember exactly how that came to be, but he was behind the decision to do it back then, but it pissed off a lot of readers. And while Conan didn't technically kill the queen by his own hand, he did throw her to her death, basically. So yeah, Conan killed her. The readers were upset about that. And eventually Roy felt that, yeah, that was probably the wrong way to go. I'm a, I don't, I I don't know. I don't care. Uh, I feel like this is something that Conan would do I know that he's got a thing for the ladies. He's got his own sort of moral code, but I don't know. I just don't feel like because she is a woman that that's just automatically going to stop him from metting out any kind of justice. You know what I'm saying? Now, technically he had an out. It's not like she was about to kill him and that was his only choice. You know, she, he had her captured. She was begging him you know, she will do anything that he wants. He can, he can be the ruler. She'll be his slave, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I don't trust you. And he, he tosses her down the pit. And for the people of Zaman, that feels like it was the right thing to do. But the, the readers were not happy about it at all. What do you guys think? Do you think that is within Conan's character from what you know of Conan based on the reading that you have done? Let me know, Stephen or else at gmail.com. But that's Dweller in the Dark. There's a couple of bits of art I wanted to point out because I have been singing Barry's praises here. And one of the things I said was, if anything detracts from the art, it's the coloring. And a couple of examples I'll use is really based on the way Barry Windsor Smith draws, especially Conan's hair. He draws like almost every individual hair. It's almost like it's not made to be colored. Or if it is, it needs like a darker blue. They they do a blue his hair and they do the same thing for Fatima and that's fine I think they should have 
if they were able to use a darker blue, they should have, because to me, it doesn't look like he's got black hair. It looks, it looks like he's got blue hair, almost gray. But there's a couple of moments where I'm looking specifically at page number 14, the third panel, we get a close up of Conan's face and it looks awesome. But he's got two strands of hair coming down the middle of his face between his eyes goes over to one side of his nose and down over to that side of his mouth. And for some reason, the colorist filled in this space between those two strands of hair with that blue. So it looks, I mean, so it looks like he's got a blue ribbon hanging from his head, which I think looks kind of weird, but otherwise the art, again, the art is really good. It's the best one so far in regard to art. It, I can understand people might look at Barry Windsor Smith's art at this point in his career. And I feel like people are either going to really like it or they're not going to like it. Okay, that was a really dumb thing to say. To me, the art, especially when it comes to the style of clothing that he draws and the backgrounds and all the lattice work and his little fur trunks, there's a point once he becomes the captain that he loses the stringy shirt and he starts wearing a vest. A vest, no shirt, little fur trunks, and boots. It's very, very 70s. I mean, I feel like that is something you would see on a lot of 70s sci-fi fantasy movies is guys with no shirts on and little trunks and, and vests and whatnot. And uh, it's not for me. I don't, I, I'm not a big fan of that look. It doesn't feel like a fantasy setting to me. It feels like a bunch of superhero comic artists and their interpretation of what a fantasy setting would look like in the 70s. And it comes across, you know, there, there's basically like this line between the look of fantasy characters and superhero characters. And this the, the art for these 12 issues so far have kind of ridden that line, but it's crossed over into the superhero side more often than not. Again, I like it. I I mean, if given the choice, sure, I wish that he would have gone with a more traditional look for the clothing, you know, like look back at at a uh, historical drawings of medieval times and whatnot, knights and all that junk and serfs and peasants and all that stuff. And so on and so on and so. <laughs> and made it a bit more like that and maybe maybe it is. For all I know, maybe it is, but because of the 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 coloring and the the lack of choice that they had for the colors maybe that's what's throwing me more than anything i mean there's a dude here who's wearing like a green tunic with red sleeves but he's also got some kind of hooded shirt short sleeve shirt on top of that and the that shirt is red and white striped so he's got like this green tunic with red sleeves with a red and white short sleeved hood hooded top on it's just weird it's a weird choice for a lot of these colors they're they're trying i think too hard to make this be really vibrant looking because you've got guys in bright yellow clothes next to guys in bright green and bright red and bright you know it's they they got these four colors so they're doing what they can with it they're they're they're, they're trying their best but I feel like the colors need to be a bit more muted for the time, but that's, that's just me. That's my opinion. I'm sure others think differently, but yeah, I think it looks freaking gorgeous. Personally, colors aside, I think the art looks great. 
I also want to point out that when Conan leaves, we see blood streaming down his back. And that's the second time, second or third time. Well, the second time we've seen blood on Conan, Conan's own blood in this issue. And I don't remember really seeing a lot of blood that was red in previous issues. I feel like any time that they were showing blood, it would they would color it black. And I don't know if that was a, a comics code thing that was, you know, you can show blood in a comic, but you can't color it red because then it's obviously blood. And frankly, I think black blood is creepier and more disgusting than red blood. But again, that's just me. But yeah, really enjoyed this one. Did not enjoy the stringy shirt, but I was able to see past that and really enjoy this story. So that brings us then to the next story in this book, The Blood of the Dragon. This was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Gil Kane. The inks are listed as diverse hands. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the letters were by Artie Simic. Everybody out. A tale of the Hyborian Age. Roy Thomas and Gil Kane not only write and illustrate the tale, but present it. The noble Caligor emerges victorious from a joust, defeating Balanus. And after treating his valet like dirt, attends a dinner at his baron's estate. There, he graciously allows the baron's son to tackle the monstrous hydrogen that is menacing a nearby village. When the son fails to return, Caligor valiantly decides to kill the monster himself, knowing full well that the gracious baron would offer his daughter and his realm to Caligor if he were to succeed. Caligor finds the beast and fatally poisons it. He is horrified to see the creature transform into the Baron's son, and as a transformation overtakes him, he realizes that whoever kills the Hydrogen is cursed to actually become the Hydrogen. So first, let's talk real quick about the inks by diverse hands. That just means that there was more than one inker for this story. Gil Kane, according to Mr. Roy Thomas, inked page one. Tom Palmer then inked most of the rest of it, and Roy thinks that maybe Bernie Wrightson helped out a bit as well. Gil Kane is the artist on this. He is, of course, if you remember from way back to our Star the Slayer or Thonagor episode, Gil Kane was the second choice or artist on Conan the Barbarian. John Buscema was the first choice. He was too expensive. Gil Kane was the second choice. He was also too expensive. Gil Kane is also a longtime Conan fan, and Roy points out in his book that Gil actually sold all of his Conan hardbacks from the 50s that Gnome Press put out. He sold them all to Roy. I also want to talk about the name of the monster. I don't know that I'm pronouncing it right. H-Y-D-R-A-G-O-N. It's a cross between a hydra and a dragon, so it's either pronounced hydragon or hydragon. And high dragon either sounds like somebody greeting a dragon in a friendly manner, high dragon, or it sounds like a dragon who gets stoned a lot. That's one high dragon. All right, all right, all right. It's a pretty cool looking monster. It's it's kind of like a cross between a, a dragon and a T-Rex almost with uh, freaking snakes coming out of its head. And the art itself is pretty good. I think Roy and Gil look pretty weird in the first panel of this book because they actually bookend this this story. We start out with a panel that has Roy standing behind Gil, who's at his drawing board, and Roy saying, You know, Gil, those Conan stories are a blast to do. 
but there must have been a lot more going on back during Howard's mythical Hyborian age of 12,000 years ago. It's a shame somebody doesn't write and draw one of those adventures. And Gil responds, Somebody's going to, Roy. Us, no less. Imagine yourself a bee clouded day in Aquilonia, the province of Poitain, the clash and clangor of a knight's tourney, and then above the tumult, a strident shout. Now, I have no idea what Roy Thomas or Gil Kane sound like. I typically shift into kind of a good old boy accent when I do accents. I don't know why, because I can do it fairly well, I guess. But the art is, is really nice. Again, as I pointed out with the cover, the knights here look more like uh, space knights, you know, sci-fi knights, superhero knights. They look like the, the kind of knights that would be hanging out with He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Very colorful armor, blue and red and yellow armor. And Caligore, for some reason, I just cannot figure out. He's wearing shorts and a short sleeve shirt underneath his armor. So he's got like this armored helmet on. He's got, well, I don't know if he's wearing armor anywhere else except for his short sleeved mailed shirt. He's got a short sleeve chainmail shirt on and he's wearing shorts or trunks. Either way, it doesn't make any sense for a knight, a mounted knight fighting in a tournament. It just, uh, I don't understand the choice of costume that these people use that like Gil and, and whatnot use in these, in these freaking stories. Now, granted, that is a look. Well, I don't know about the short sleeve skin tight chainmail. That has never made sense to me. I mean, it does when it when when you're when you're looking at it from an artistic standpoint for what they were trying to do back then and crank out stories. You know, these are to a certain extent superhero artists and you take a superhero like Superman for example, when it comes to drawing Superman, ultimately you're just drawing the nude form and then drawing lines at his wrist to indicate where his shirt stops and drawing lines on his calves to indicate where the boots stop, and then drawing lines around his waist to indicate where his trunks and his belt are. Otherwise, you're just drawing the nude form, and that's kind of what they're doing here. They're just kind of filling in part of the, the arm with the, the, to make it look like chainmail, but it's skin tight, and chainmail didn't do that, and it makes it look super weird to me. And while they may have run around in these little short skirts type of thing, like these long tunics that look like short skirts or kilts with bare legs underneath, the, the prince or the baron's son, for example, that's how he's dressed. He's wearing this tunic that's belted at the waist, and he may have some trunks on underneath the tunic, but the, the tunic goes down to about, I don't know, just above mid-thigh, so it looks like he's wearing a little skirt. And I get that. I've seen that. That, that feels authentic to me. The uh, skin-tight, short-sleeved chainmail he's wearing underneath his tunic looks wrong. But for somebody to be wearing the same type of thing on horseback during a jousting tournament, that doesn't make any sense to me. This guy should be in full armor, but he's not. I'm not going to say a lot about this story. It was fun. I think at the very end, the final panel, when we see Roy and Gil again, Roy says, A great gory story, Gil, right out of the old weird tales. And that's kind of what this felt like to me, an old weird tales or even an old Twilight Zone type of story, because we have a guy fighting a monster. 
but there's a twist because nobody's been able to defeat this monster. Anytime somebody has gone up against this monster, they've never come back. Monster continues to live. Caligor, who's not a good guy, he thinks he's figured out a way to do it. And the only reason he's, he's going to kill this monster is so he can become the, the Baron's heir and end up with all the Baron's land when the Baron dies, whether by natural means or sinister means. I don't think that's ever brought up, but Caligor seems like the type of guy that would murder the Baron if it meant that he would inherit his land sooner. So he basically throws a sword into the, the Hydrogen's mouth that is coated in poison, and it kills the monster. But he learns that whoever kills the monster then becomes the monster. So the monster transforms into the dead body of the Baron's son as Caligor turns into the monster. And that's a neat little twist. I, I enjoy stuff like that. It was a fun little story, the art. I, I actually really enjoyed the art. Clothing options aside, I really did quite enjoy the art. I, I think just based on this one story, I don't know off the top of my head of any other Gil Kane stories that I've read, but just based off this one story, I'm a, I'm a Gil Kane fan. And really, I don't know that there is anything else I want to say about either of these two stories. So how about we do some listeners feedback? All right. So today I've got just some comments that were left over on YouTube and one comment from a tweet. They're all fairly general. They don't really specifically go into specific episodes, but I thought I would share the feedback. So from over at YouTube, we have at Blind Ucho, who says, I have been listening to your Conan podcast and it is excellent. Thanks. He said thanks, but now I say thanks right back to Blind Ucho. And I said him that, you know, that's this. I don't know if it's a guy. I should stop doing that. They and them. That's what I that's what you should use when you don't know. Anyway, next is a comment from at Stygian Dogs. Great episode and a great issue. He was actually specifically talking about Titan, the, the Titan Conan issue number two. Stygian Dogs has his own YouTube channel, at Stygian Dogs, in which he talks a lot about Conan and, and whatnot. Um, it's a fun little channel. Go check it out. And then the last thing we have from YouTube is from at an age undreamed of, and they say, really enjoying these reviews, and I'm glad you're digging the new series. So thank you for everybody who left those notes, the, 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 the three of you who left those comments over on YouTube. I've always heard, never look at the comments on YouTube. And I do have some not great comments over on YouTube. I think one person said uh, t something to the effect of, why would anybody listen to a podcast that just tells you what happened in the comic when you can just read the comic. And obviously that, that person didn't listen to the entire episode because that's just part of it. Right. Anyway, from Twitter, I got uh, a note from at the fry pod and that's the underscore fry pod. And he goes by Paul says, hi, Steven, I'm really enjoying your Conan podcasts that I have just discovered your enthusiasm and love for the material have made me go back and reread my own books. I love Roy and Barry Smith's work on the character with some of the early Savage Sword of Conan Buscema as well. And then he says he's up to episode eight. And then he left a reply to uh, the tweet I put out for 
episode eight, in which I talked about issue number eight of Conan the Barbarian, Keepers of the Crypt. And he says, just as a footnote to this episode as well, there was another adaptation to this story by Roy Thomas, the great Neil Adams, and John Buscema, where it was a comic alongside a record. You could probably track it down and you might find it interesting. And he has an image of the cover. And I think my original response was that looks really freaking cool. And I'll have to see if I can find it. Well, I just happened to be looking through the the epic collections that I own that I have digitally. And uh the one of them right in the very back of it is this freaking issue. So I thought it might be fun to, you know, I've been thinking about what kind of bonus episodes I might want to do for the Patreon or for some kind of subscriber level that I could do a bonus episode and then maybe a month later release it for everybody. And maybe I'll start with that one. That will be my first bonus episode, but I got to read it first, but that's it. That's all I got, folks. That's the feedback. I love the feedback. I appreciate the feedback. There are obviously many ways you can leave the feedback, but you want to send me an email, Stephen or else at gmail.com. Next time we're going to look at Conan, the barbarian issue number 13. It's called web of the spider God from Marvel comics from October 1971. Until then, keep your swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. Bye! Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or Else. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. So I figured I'd just remind y'all. Anyway, at some... So I figured I'd just remind you guy. So I figured I'd just remind Anyway, at some point... Anyway, at some point between issues of 11... Davy, Davy Crockett. Anyway, I just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Into the boat, everybody out. Back to the crypt. Into the tunnel. Oh, hi, Conan. How are you? Enough talk.